1: The change is to that balancing test. The new rule really, uh, the the main question in the policy now becomes whether the activity at issue is within the scope of news gathering as defined. So the new policy defines news gathering. And if you're within that news gathering line or on that news gathering
0: side of the line, then process is, is not available. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 5th, 2023. It's been about six months since the Attorney General issued new guidelines on compulsory process to members of the press in criminal and national security investigations, and two officials of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, Bruce Brown and Gabe Rotman, wrote a detailed analysis of the document in two parts for Lawfare a couple of weeks ago. Gabe Rotman joined me in the Goat Rodeo studio to go through the document carefully, the long history that led to it, the shifting policies that have gotten more restrictive over the years since the Supreme Court ruled in Brandsburg v. Hayes, the ramp up of leak investigations and reporter subpoenas in the Obama and Trump administrations, and the new policy that creates a red-line policy against them under most, but not all, circumstances. We talked about the document. We talked about why the Justice Department has forsworn a historic and upheld authority. We talked about what it means for reporters and criminal investigations going forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 5th. Gabe Rotman on the Justice Department's new guidelines on press subpoenas. So I want to start with some history. This is a issue that has been actively contested since I was a small child. Um, And I I associate it originally with the kind of immediate post-Watergate period when did this first come up, and how long has the press and the Justice Department been fighting over document production requests and and testimonial requests, uh, uh, demands to reporters for matters related to their sources?
1: Uh, so uh, it actually uh, it predates by a couple of
0: years Watergate. Uh,
1: it, it all came about in starting in 1970. Under the Nixon administration with the law and order approach Um, and the then attorney general, John Mitchell, issued a number of subpoenas in connection with that that general strategy of the Justice Department, um, one of which was to Earl Caldwell, a reporter for The New York Times, who had uh, fostered significant uh, sourcing within the Black Panther Party. And in response to that subpoena and the significant controversy uh, that arose, Attorney General Mitchell was was surprised, at least according to the reporting from the time. at uh the how how vigorous the the uh, concern over that subpoena was um that subpoena actually was part of was one of the three subpoenas that resulted in the supreme court case in Brandsburg that held that there's no general reporters privilege but in connection to caldwell and a few other things mitchell announced that he would institute a policy of the justice department limiting when and how it can use subpoenas uh, to seek information from reporters and to try and force them to disclose their confidential sources. So it all stems from that, uh, that era in 1970. And then uh, over the course of ensuing years, there's been this dynamic where you would have a controversy like Caldwell. The guidelines would get revised. You'd have a number of years go by without any without any news on it. And then you'd have another controversy and the Justice Department would, again, look at the guidelines and revise them. Um, And that's happened. uh, It happened in 1980 uh, with a subpoena that uh, sought phone records from Howell Raines uh, and the Atlanta Bureau of the New York Times in a case involving the Klan. And in response to that, the Justice Department revised the guidelines to include telephone toll records. And then most memorably for us probably is in the mid-2010s, uh, there was a subpoena to the Associated Press in the Underwear uh, Bomber case uh, seeking to identify uh, confidential sources for AP reporters. Uh, the subpoena there was quite broad. Uh, it covered 20 phone lines uh, used by more than 100 AP reporters. Um, and it was also issued secretly. Uh, because the guidelines, the policy then had a presumption against notifying an affected number, member of the news media uh, unless the attorney general made an affirmative determination that prior notice wouldn't cause harm. And then, in after the AP subpoena, shortly after it came to light that in 2010, a uh, Fox News correspondent, James Rosen, had had his email, uh, the actual contents of his email, uh, seized pursuant to a search warrant. And that just added to the controversy and led to several revisions to the guidelines that flipped that presumption against prior notice um, and then actually added search warrants to the types of process covered by the guidelines. And then that led to what we learned in, uh, tw- in 2021, that in the last year of the Trump administration, uh, there had been subpoenas for phone records and email records uh, covering eight reporters across three news outlets um, that were also issued under that delayed notice procedure. Uh, and then we had discussion over revising the guidelines
0: now. So before we get to the current guidelines, it, it, it does seem to me like everybody except the press – Has a kind of selective outrage about this, you know, that a lot of Republicans were upset at the aggressiveness of the Obama administration in this area. Democrats were upset at the aggressiveness of the Trump administration. Is there any pattern that you can discern about Republican presidents being more aggressive in this area than Democratic presidents or vice versa? Is this a Bill Barr problem or a Loretta Lynch problem? Or is this just a institutional friction between the Justice Department and the press over time? I I, I think it is emphatically the latter.
1: Uh, if you look at the the trend lines there, there there's no partisan sheen that you can discern one way or the other uh you know the Obama administration famously pursued uh leak investigations at a greater rate than than all other presidencies combined um, that's the quote that's often that's often given out there or the statistic that's often given out there and it happens to be true but I think the reality is even a little more complex and you know the Trump administration continued with that with that trend uh bringing cases like reality winner and um Daniel Hale and th- I I think as you say it's just institutional friction it's it's uh you know both both sides have jobs to do and and the 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 sense of what those jobs are maybe differs
0: all right so There is this amazing exception to this pattern, and that is Merrick Garland, who comes into office and, uh, you know, basically capitulates to the long-standing demands of the press, whether I I don't mean capitulate in a negative sense, but, but really says the Justice Department, you know, renounces the Justice Department's historic position, which is you know, one variation or another of we reserve the right to do this, but we're going to do it sparingly with a lot of review. And he puts forward a uh, a document, the details of which we will discuss in a moment, but that basically amounts to the general bright line rule is we're not going to do this. And so before we get to the details of that document, I want to Talk to you about the psychology of the decision. You know, Merrick Garland, who is the word that everybody uses to describe him all the time is institutionalist. You know, on this issue is actually renouncing a historical institutional position of the department. Uh, Why?
1: I, I, mean, I, I wish I could speak to, to the specific psychology. I don't have insight, you know, into, into that. But, but I think it's certainly true, as you say, that, uh, that the rule that has been laid down, you know, is in many respects, and we'll talk about the potential edge cases, uh, but it is in, in many respects, you know, as strong as anything that, that you could think about in this case or in this, in this situation. And I mean, I guess what I would say too is that the rule isn't just there to protect reporters, right? The rule is, I mean, it's there to protect reporters. It's there to protect the democracy-enhancing function that public interest journalism brings, uh, particularly when it comes to government transparency. Uh, But it's also there to manage uh, headaches for the Justice Department. You know, as I say, the dynamic that you've seen historically is, you know, for, for whatever reason, you'll see overreach. There'll be public outcry about that overreach. The Justice Department will Apologize, and we'll revisit the guidelines in order to try and prevent that from happening again. And that just serves efficiency uh, in in government operations.
0: So, I, w- I want to try a different angle to try to get you to address the psychology, not the specific psychology, but the institutional psychology question. One possible explanation is the the inefficiency of constant revision. And that you look at this and you say, okay, at the end of the day, the total amount of information that we're getting by, you know, by not renouncing this position is va- vanishingly small and it causes institutional embarrassment on a serial basis. And so just don't do it. And, you know, we have a thousand ways of getting information. And by the way, we never Finish a leak investigation anyway, so it's not you know it's not like we're you know given up a whole lot, but the problem with that argument is that the circumstances in which the justice department reserves the right to do these are some of the most you know it's not the routine case right it's the case where you Expect some significant violation of the Espionage Act, or where you, you know, believe that there is a real national security exigency involved in something. You know, in the Rosen case, it involved North Korea, right? So I'm curious why the Justice Department would leave itself basically no exception. Uh, And we'll get to the whether there really is no exception in a minute. But it's a pretty bright line rule. And you know, prosecutors usually don't say, "Hey, there's a Supreme Court opinion that says we get to do this. We're not going to do it." Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Right, which is which is really the, the historic the historic thing here, right? We're talking about forbearance from powers that the courts have generally said that the Justice Department has you know in i think it's important to actually talk about the details of the policy in terms of where the the door may have been left open because a lot of this really the rubber meets the road when we're talking about national security leak investigations because you know the the justice department the justice department has has long taken the position and it hasn't changed that position and it's important to emphasize that that the espionage act applies to the receipt uh, possession and publication of classified information by anybody, reporters included, and you know the the rule is, uh, you know, as we'll see, uh, the rule expressly covers those elements of the life cycle of national security reporting, possession, receipt possession and publication. But but there's also the sort of gray area that we talk about in terms of the actual pursuit of information. Well, again, we'll talk about that in a second. But no, absolutely. It, it, in, in a lot of ways, it is a historic act of forbearance uh, by the Justice Department. But I'm also not sure that and again, as we'll talk about, that there are edge cases where, um, you know, process may still be available. You know, and certainly, again, the Justice Department is not, has not, has not expressly stepped away from the position that the Espionage Act applies to that, those types of activities. All
0: right. So let's dive into the document itself. First of all, this was issued last year. Uh, you and your, your co author, analyzed it in La Faire recently, so uh there was there was a bit of a lag for readers who were wondering if they missed a news event. As succinctly as you can, Describe the previous policy and describe what the new document changes it to. Mm -hmm.
1: So so the previous policy was uh, a balancing test that would be engaged in by the department where it would weigh the investigative need against First Amendment interests as it perceived them. Uh, And if the balance tipped in favor of those investigative needs, then process would be available. Um, Subpoenas, search warrants, uh, court orders for uh, certain types of electronic metadata, and there were protections in place or checks in place to to ensure that this was only being used in extraordinary cases, things like prior notice to an affected member of the news media, high level approval, m- most approvals by the attorney general, um, and then some form of exhaustion. So you had to take all reasonable steps to get the stuff from somebody else. The change is to that balancing test. The new rule, um, and as we'll discuss this, really uh, the the main question in the policy now becomes whether the activity at issue is within the scope of news gathering as defined. So the new policy defines news gathering, and if you're within that news gathering line or on that news gathering side of the line, then process
0: is is not available. So it's a a balancing test in which – Assuming you, you count as engaged in news gathering, a hundred percent of the weight is on one side. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, and that
1: makes the definition of news gathering particularly important.
0: Right. So in a world in which everybody has a podcast and a Twitter feed, uh, that seems to me to be, I don't know if it's a loophole, but it's an, it's a, Question that requires an interpretive exercise: What do we know about who counts as a news gatherer for purposes of this uh, policy?
1: Yeah, I, so it's a functional approach, which which is which is good whenever, and this is the eternal question, what is news gathering? Who counts as a journalist? Um, it's a functional approach, and it basically says that news gathering is the process by which uh, members of the news media pursue, collect, obtain information for disclosure to the public. With, And then it has two qualifiers there that are really important for national security leak cases.
0: Right. So let's ho- hold the, the two qualifiers for a moment. But- does that mean if you're reporting anything newsworthy, you're a news gatherer? Or does that mean if you are engaged in activity that looks a lot like being a reporter? I mean, for example, a, a citizen standing up in a town, a public town hall and asking a public official a question, that could be a reporter or it could be an angry member of the public, right? But in that moment, they're doing the same thing. And if you're a reporter, you're news gathering at that point, because you're asking a public official a question. Would the Justice Department, if it's suspected that that person's phone has, you know, relevant evidence, and that person is not a professional member of the media... Do we assume that that person, because she was asking a question of a public official in a public location, sort of the way a reporter does, counts as a reporter? Or do we assume that that person is, hey, any citizen can ask a question. That person's asking in a capacity as a citizen. No evidence of news
1: gathering so it's a great question and and this is always you know there there are two questions on the policy you know who counts as a member of the news media for the policy to apply at all you know and then w- what is news gathering on the question of who counts as a member of the news media the justice department Since 2013, after the AP and James Rosen uh, cases, uh, has been issuing annual reports where it describes, uh, you know, in some detail how it applies the the guidelines. And if you read those reports, historically, tends to err on the side of caution. Um, and so, you know, even, you know, so, someone who self identifies as a journalist who's arrested, for instance, for uh, allegedly accosting a cabinet member during a congressional hearing, the department applied the guidelines, nunc pro tunk. they applied them retroactively um, and sought authorization for the arrest kind of after the fact and you'll see instances of that happening with some frequency where in in an abundance of caution they'll they'll apply the guidelines uh to self-described members of the news media and the like it's unclear how that will play out under the current guidelines there is a process uh where if the que- if there's a close or novel question about some whether someone is a member of the news media that has to be approved that has to be approved at a higher level but 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 again here because the the question is whether you're engaged in news gathering, the, that threshold question of whether you're a member of the news media is a little bit, I think, less, is a little bit less important. Uh, and, and I do suspect that, you know, citizen journalists
0: and, you know, freelancers will be covered by the guidelines. And then you describe two exceptions for national security purposes. These seem to me to be pivotal in the sense that the policy it's hard to imagine how they how it could work without them so walk us through what these two exceptions are and then then I have some questions about them yeah so so the so the qualifiers from the the definition of news gathering
1: it basically works in two ways And there's two sections. The first one says that the mere receipt, possession, or publication of government information, including classified information, is within the scope of news gathering. Um, It also importantly says that uh, establishing a means of receiving that information, so for instance, moving to encrypted communications, is also within the scope of news gathering. And then it says that certain broad categories of criminal activity and then it lists them, but it's not it's not listing specific statutes. It's using, you know, a uh, small b burglary, for instance, right? Small t theft, uh, small u unauthorized access to a computer network. It lists those activities and it says th- these are not news gathering. And the issue that we point out in the, the pieces in lawfare is that there are certain federal statutes where if you read them in isolation – the plain text would apply to, for instance, receiving uh, government property. So, if you receive, you know, a Manila envelope uh, with classified information, that could potentially be a, vi- a violation not just of the Espionage Act, but uh, Section six forty one, conversion of government property for your own own purpose. And so, so the the potential there is that reporters engaged in what we would consider routine news gathering, the pursuit of information that you could have an aggressive prosecutor articulate a conspiracy or aiding and abetting or another inchoate criminal theory in those cases.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? Right.
0: is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get twenty percent off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and use promo code Lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get twenty percent off is to go to joindelete.me.com/lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout that's joindeleteme.com/lawfare20 code lawfare20 all right let's let's think about this in practice uh, the the qualifications basically say if you committed a crime to obtain the information other than any crime that might be described by mere receipt uh, that's not covered. right. So that's the gray,
1: that, that's the gray area. It's the if the if the life cycle of, of the reporting is getting the information or is seeking the information, receiving the information, having the information, and then publishing the information, it's the the piece before receipt where, where you where there are questions. Some uncertainty.
0: Assuming you didn't burglarize something yourself, or hack something yourself. It's pretty clear that once you've done one of those things, you're kind of game on for from the Justice Department's point of view, right? Game on in the sense of the the policy
1: applies or or, or doesn't.
0: It doesn't apply because you're you're legitimately a subject of the investigation then right. yourself, and you know they may reasonably want to prosecute you for. You know anything from trespassing to burglary to CFAA kind of stuff. Right, right.
1: So, 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 certainly, if you, you know, if you're if you're a reporter and you break into a bank in order to get files for a story, that's not protected. You know whether it's within the scope of news gathering or not. That would likely be, a, you know, a closer novel question, um, and there would be. You know, there there would be some review, but but it's it's pretty clear that the guidelines are not meant to to shield reporters uh, from garden variety crimes that that are not related to news gathering the The trickier issues are when the underlying act by a journalistic source is itself a crime. So that's Espionage Act, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, a bunch of others. And then you, as part of news gathering, you know, seek information, foster a relationship with that source in order to try and get that information. and then where how does that come down under the policy?
0: And what about if, as Julian Assange apparently did with Chelsea Manning, you sort of encourage the hacking and stealing. You know, you didn't do it yourself. You didn't – he hasn't, I don't believe, been charged with conspiring to do it. But how much coaxing – can you do and still be within the policy?
1: That's the the ultimate question. The example, the the hardest example or or one of the hardest examples I can think of, um, and we, we mentioned this in the piece, is your reporter, there's the Senate torture report, the full torture report, not the executive summary that's still classified. And you say, if you give it to me, I will publish it on the front page tomorrow. That's solicitation, right, of what is on its, on the face of the statute a crime, um, and it even goes beyond that a little bit in terms of th- there's almost arguably consideration, right? If you give it to me, I'll publish it. So you're you're really inducing procuring a, a crime in that case. And the question is, how would how would
0: the policy apply? And and you think the answer to that is we don't know at this stage.
1: We we don't know. There there is uh, so. So there's two things. One is I mentioned that the definition of news gathering includes that term pursues, uh, the pursuit of information, which suggests that it's not just passive receipt or at least hopefully would signal to a prosecutor reading the guidelines that it's not just passive receipt. Um, and then there's another process where – if there is, and I keep saying closer novel because I'm quoting directly from the guidelines, the policy. If there's a closer novel question about whether something is within the scope of news gathering, it goes up to an assistant attorney general for determination. If there's genuine uncertainty, again, quote unquote, on that question, then it goes up to directly to the attorney general for to, to make that final determination. And so, hopefully, at least in those close in the in those edge cases, there would be the attorney general himself or herself, would put eyes on on the issue and make the final
0: determination. All right. So in practice, let's talk about how different this would be from the prior policy where, you know, the message was, don't do this unless you really, really, really have to. And by the way, if you really, really have to, you got to show up in the attorney general's office and have him review it and it's going to be a real pain in the ass. So functionally, how would the, the cases decided under the previous policy have looked if you had decided them on the, under this policy?
1: Yeah. So, so I, 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 think, uh, and, and we argue as much in the pieces that the Associated Press subpoena, which, and the concern over the Associated Press subpoena was twofold, really. It was one, that it was overbroad, um, and two, that it was issued in secret, that there wasn't prior notice. And, and that, unless there was some indication uh, that goes beyond just mere receipt of the information, that if the, the prosecutor had, had on hand information that suggested that, the reporters had done something more than just get the information, then that it likely would be barred under the current policy. Um, clearly, within the scope of news gathering, and again, receipt, possession, and publication of classified information. Likewise, with the 2020 uh, seizures from the from CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, same kind of argument one of the trickier questions we we've touched on this already is the sort of james rosen scenario which also can apply now in the context of process that it, that isn't a search warrant so subpoenas or uh, or court orders under uh, the store communications act in that case the concern is that the department would articulate would, would would try and invoke uh, a suspect exception where they would articulate that nominal conspiracy theory or aiding and abetting theory in order to get around the, the, the bright line. But in the James Rosen case, the previous guidelines included uh, a provision that said, effectively, you can't invoke the suspect exception with respect to search warrants to go after a reporter if really what you're trying to do is investigate or prosecute somebody else. And the cur- the the revised guidelines contain that sole purpose exception as well. So the, that really is the roadmap for an end run. Is saying that well, you asked the the source for the information. The source committed a crime by getting the information, um, and therefore you're complicit.
0: Right. All right. So I I want to think that example through because it seems to me it seems to me a complicated example. If the Justice Department were ever to do that, you would be out here saying, wait a minute, why did they create this policy in the first place if only to circumvent it like this? It seems to me they wouldn't have much of a leg to stand on in answering that question, right?
1: Well, and this is the you know this is the point that 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 we make right that e- even if there's some uncertainty you know in the policy the fact that it does include that qual- the 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 forbearances you note for the receipt possession or publication of classified information and government information at, at large that's relatively clear. The uncertainty is going to put these questions back where they always were, which is in the land of uh, government press relations, you know, in politics and, and how the public responds to the these types
0: of stories. So what has the reaction to the policy been? I, I mean, you guys were pretty enthusiastic about it. I assume the rest of the institutional press was as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah the absolutely
1: the with recognition that there are these these questions that that uh, that are still uh outstanding the the express parts of the policy are are
0: certainly quite quite strong and the policy to the extent that Nothing has arisen yet under it that we are aware of where it's been exercised one way or the other. Is that right?
1: So there, there is a case uh, where Boston Globe in the, the I think it's the Varsity Blues uh, cases in Massachusetts. There was a Boston Globe reporter who was subpoenaed, but uh, to authenticate uh, pub- published information. But in that's a,
0: a, a that's an explicit exception. Exactly. In the, you know, and and so but but i mean there hasn't been a case that anybody knows of in which under the previous policy some process might have issued but under the new policy there has been no process right right as far as i know there's
1: no there's no process that that is i i guess triggered the the the
0: close questions in the policy so there's no way at this stage to know how it's working or whether whether it's having a protective effect or whether the situation simply hasn't come up to test it yet.
1: I think that's fair. But, but the situation has not come up to test it yet. I mean, the other, the other data point, too, is that I, I think – well, during this point in the Trump administration, if I'm getting this right, uh, you did have a demand that went to a reporter, uh, the Ali Watkins case. And then you also had you know a series of uh, uh, leak investigations and prosecutions. We haven't had
0: any of those. So in light of that, do you think the, the Garland Justice Department has essentially decided to ease off on leak investigations in general? Uh, or is this a situation where there are probably as many leak investigations as there ever were? They've just you know, sworn off using reporters' records as, as evidence in them. Without too much speculation, you
1: know, if there are if there are active leak investigations, uh, then uh, the policy is probably and the policy itself says, right, that it doesn't limit uh, the department's ability to pursue uh, evidence in these cases from non non-media sources. And, you know, and if you look at the leak prosecutions under both the Obama administration and the Trump administration, the cases where prosecutors have sought information from members of the news media are rare. Uh, You know, normally it is you you seek it from the suspected leaker.
0: All right. So one problem with this policy from the news media's point of view is that, you know, you kind of live by the executive policy, you die by the executive policy, uh, a new administration comes in, a new attorney general under this administration comes in and you could have a completely different policy in this area. Just as you described the problem as an institutional friction, not a partisan thing between the Justice Department and the press, To what extent is this an institutional solution? And to what extent is this a highly personal kind of Merrick Garland, Lisa Monaco solution that, you know, when you have, you know, Attorney General Rudy Giuliani or Attorney General Doug Jones or Attorney General, you know, Sally Yates may not be a, a a lasting thing.
1: So that that's a key point to make. And absolutely. They, Attorney General Garland you know, said that the department supports legislation to make the policy durable. Last Congress, uh, there was some action on the Press Act, uh, which is federal shield legislation. Senator Ron Wyden, uh, who introduced the bill in the Senate, uh, brought it to the floor and sought uh, to pass on unanimous consent, but it was blocked by uh, Senator Tom Cotton. Uh, and, and that would – that that law would make certain features of this policy pretty durable, but that's absolutely of concern that you could have it, that it is an internal policy; it's not subject to notice and comment. Uh, it can be changed at the discretion of a future, uh, a future administration or a future Justice Department. But that said, again, the dynamic over time has been perceived overreach or or, or controversy over some overreach, uh, retrenchment by the the department, apology reform, and then rinse and repeat. And so there isn't a case where the policy has been weakened historically.
0: The guidelines have a bright line rule if you're engaged in news gathering. But if you're not engaged in news gathering, is there then a bright line rule that, you know, Okay, Wittis, he's sometimes a reporter, but, you know, right now he looks like a bank robber. Uh, uh, let's get his records. I mean, is it, is it sort of open season at that point or, or, or are there some restrictions that apply even if, you know, hey, he, he, he you know, he may be a Washington Post reporter, but he seems to be, you know, running a heroin ring. Right. Yeah, and, and, and
1: I think that's also, so, in addition to the question of what's within the scope of news gathering and that sort of solicitation question that's hanging out there, there's also going to be this exception uh, where you're not acting within the scope of news gathering. But even there, the the policy provides that notice can be given to, to the subject. So even if you're uh, – and the way that it phrases it is if you are not acting within the scope of news gathering, you're the subject or target of an investigation and you're suspected of having committed an offense – even there, there's permissive notice. And if notice isn't given, then the deputy attorney general needs to be notified that process was issued. And then there's a few other things that kick in. And that's actually different from the previous policies where you would have been wholesale excluded from its coverage. So, so even there, the you would have higher level eyes being put on, this, on the situation.
0: So all in all, um, having now had six months to think about this new policy, you guys are the reporters committee. Give it a letter grade. What well, I mean, you sound pretty enthusiastic about it.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, and, and we've said that, that where the policy is explicit on its coverage, it's historic, right? This is a situation where courts have said, you can do this. And the Department of Justice is saying, we won't do this. It's a big deal. But again, as practitioners, we need to live with the fact that there is some uncertainty. And we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out. But in terms of the new protections that are in the policy, A. I
0: would be remiss since this is lawfare if I didn't say, hey, one thing this is going to do is it's going to frustrate a lot of uh, FBI leak investigators and you're going to have a situation where uh, out of solicitude for the press, a whole lot of merited cases are not going to be brought because – the Justice Department doesn't want to do things that are conceitedly legal for it to do and which the Supreme Court has blessed. And so to the disgruntled FBI agent who who says, OK, that's really nice for the Washington Post reporter who's helping, you know, helping people commit crimes by giving them information that they shouldn't have. But what about the public who wants that classified information protected what do you say to that person?
1: So I, this goes goes to I think the the point that that we were talking about earlier, which is that both sides have a job to do, and either side may have a different impression of what that job entails. I guess one thing I would say is for you know for that agent or for the prosecutor, and and you know I'm. I, I would expect and I hope that they they understand this. One of the concerns when it comes to aggressive leak investigations, particularly when you're talking about getting records from reporters, is that it's not just about the big dump of clearly classified material. The The dynamic that is of really of greater concern, I think, is that you have sources that won't talk even close to the edges of of those of those issues, they won't even touch something that, regardless of whether it's classified, even if it, uh, even if it relates in potentially some way to the national defense, you have sources who just dry up there, and, and that's not a good situation for anybody. Particularly when you're talking about a, a world in which the proliferation of digital fingerprints makes it, you know, as we've seen in these leak investigations, uh, makes it where you can try and get the
0: information from the suspected leaker first. We're going to leave it there. Gabe Rotman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. Really great to be here. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the intrepid Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. You are our publicity department. And if you have not tweeted about the Lawfare Podcast, if you have not shared the Lawfare Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Pinterest, then you have not done your duty and you need to do that. You should also become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by the one, the only, Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This message comes from BOF
1: sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee.